This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is valued. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real Life Christian Church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. Some people from our music team went to a worship conference not too long ago and they were really pumped up and they said, well, could you preach on worship? And that, that started me thinking about real worship. And I said, what is it? So I, um, I decided to look up, here we go with Greek again. You know, I decided to look up the Greek word and get at the, you know, the root meaning. And the Greek word is proskineo and that means, and I know that makes you weak, but here's what it means. It honestly literally means, you know, the word kineo means to... To kiss, and the word pros means to bow before somebody, is to um, kiss their feet. And so it literally means to um, bow and kiss somebody's feet. Now the Greek word, the Greek language, using that, you see, see, the Holy Spirit is trying to convey something by the use of that word. That's why I say it. And so um, as you take that, as you take that, that, that word, proskineo, it comes out to this. It's an attitude or gesture, a gesture as you bow before somebody of, of complete dependence. And I like that. That's a good definition. That's what the Greek dictionary said. Worship isn't, based on that word, is an attitude of um, complete dependence on somebody else, uh, recognized by a gesture. Now, I continued with that, and I looked at 1 John chapter 4, or at John chapter 4, and this is the key verse you might say on worship, where Jesus says real worship is to worship Him in spirit and in truth. See, spirit means that true worship emits from within. It's a heart attitude. It's an attitude of dependence, a heart attitude of dependence, of dependence because you understand that he's God and you're you. And so I'm defining worship in my mind. Now I'm narrowing this whole thing down. And it's a heart attitude of dependence on God. It's a heart attitude. That's what it is. Worship is a heart attitude of dependence on God. Why? Because he is so God. I mean, he's, he just, he's just God. And you're you and he's so out of my league. And so in worship, what am I focused on? I'm focused on who he is. So worship happens when my focus is completely on God, on whom I depend with all my heart. And that finally narrowed down, narrowed it down. Worship is, or worship happens, when my focus is completely on God, see, on whom I depend with all my heart. I don't even know who wrote this. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not shouting, I'm, I'm clean living. I'm whispering, I was lost, but now I'm forgiven. When I say I'm a Christian, I don't speak of this with pride. I'm confessing that I stumble and need Christ to be my guide. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing I'm weak and need his strength to carry on. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not bragging about success. I'm admitting I failed. I love this, and need him to clean my mess. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not claiming to be perfect. My flaws are too visible, but God believes I'm worth it. 
Isn't that great? When I say I'm a Christian, I, I still feel the sting of pain. I have my share of heartaches, so I call upon his name. See, which is worship again. Oh, that is so good. Here's the deal about worship then. Here's the deal. I'm dwelling on this, I'm dwelling on this message and thinking about worship. And two Saturdays ago, I read Psalm 48. And this psalm has many elements of true worship. Not all the elements, but some elements of true worship. So maybe you want to just flip to Psalm 48. I just want to read some of this. You know, for verse 1, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Goes on to say, In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, that's the city of Jerusalem. We'll talk about that. You jump down to verse 9. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Worship is meditation on who God is. Worship is giving God all the glory. I'm looking at verse 12. Walk about Zion, that's Jerusalem. Go, go, go counter towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to the end. And I read that and I says, hey man, the dude who wrote this thing, the human author of this thing, was kind of reveling. He was reveling with pride in his God. So I study the background of this psalm and I discover that the human author, the human author is King Hezekiah and he's reveling in the victory God gave him and the people of the Jews over the brutal Assyrians. So to understand Psalm 48, we need to look at this great victory that King Hezekiah, remember he's the human author of this psalm inspired by the divine author, the Holy Spirit, and we got to look at what he's celebrating. And you can find the story behind Psalm 48 in, well, you can find it in 2 Kings, you can find it in, um, in Isaiah 37 to 39, and you can find the story, the Condensed Reader's Digest version, 2 Chronicles 32, so let's look at that. 2 Chronicles 32. So you got to keep your fingers in 2 Chronicles 32 and Psalm 48. Now here's what we need to know. In about 700 BC, the Assyrians were the big bad guys, the guys to be afraid of. You didn't mess with Assyria. 700 BC is when... Um, about when Hezekiah wrote this. Now, you, you, well, well, do you know why people were afraid of Assyria? Because they invented the most horrible, brutal types of torture and death imaginable. I mean, slow, painful death. Assyria had pain engineers. They had pain technology. They studied. They studied it, man. They studied slow, painful death. They perfected this. I read this somewhere that when they would conquer a city, they would round up as many people as they could, and then they'd skin them alive without any anesthesia, just pull their skin off. And then they take these denuded bodies and just pile them up at the gate of that city. And they take the skins and put them in another pile. I mean, these guys were um, bent on pain. And they, see, that sent a message, don't mess with us. We're the tough guys. And a guy named Sennacherib was their king. And he set his focus on, on, on the kingdom of Judah, where Hezekiah was king, where the Jews lived, see. Now, you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And the word of God says this in verse 1, after all that, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, I want to tell you this, he was a good king. He, he brought about a lot of reforms. And in 2 Chronicles 32, 1, it says, after all that Hezekiah had done, so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities and all this. But here's the deal. See, Sennacherib didn't get inside the city walls. He came toward Jerusalem, but he never got inside the city walls. So Hezekiah when he sees the Assyrians coming, he begins to fortify the city. And Sennacherib's guys, they kind of laugh 
And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he's the bad guy, sends a letter to Hezekiah, king of Judah. He's the good guy. And he sends it to all the people in Jerusalem, in this walled city of Jerusalem, for that matter. And he has one of his men sitting on horseback outside the city walls with some kind of a megaphone. Read this letter to the people on the wall. You got to picture this in your mind's eye. There were sentries on the wall. You had this huge wall surrounding Jerusalem. And sentries would walk on those walls. And as a matter of fact, with the Assyrian army gathering out there, Half the people, half the people in Jerusalem were walking on the walkways on top of those walls. And here's this guy sitting on his horse, and he's reading this threatening letter. And I'm reading in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 10. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. The guy on the horse is reading this through a megaphone. He says, and what are you basing your confidence that you remain here in Jerusalem under siege. When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Syria, he's misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Now all the people on the wall are listening to this, see? Then you jump down to verse 15. Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Don't believe him, for no god of any nation or any kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my ancestors how much less will your God deliver you from my hand? And then you jump down to verse 18. And they actually read this in the Hebrew tongue to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall. Listen now to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. See? To terrify them and make them afraid. The Assyrians dealt in fear. And it was working because the fear inside those city walls mounted. The armies surrounded the city. You could go up on that wall and you could just kind of walk in a circle and you could just see as you walked around the whole wall, you could see the, the, the Assyrian army encamped around, around the whole city and they had weapons of war, they had battering rams, they had ladders to scale the wall, they had spears, they had swords, but the army didn't move on the city, not yet, not yet. They just kind of parked there. Why? To create fear, to let the people imagine what kind of fiendish torture had the Assyrians come up with for you guys in Jerusalem. Man, and it was working, I said. Inside those walls, the fear was mounting. Now you pretend you're a sentry on the wall. And every day for a week or two weeks, I mean, you're just looking, you're just watching those armies, wondering when will they attack? I mean, are they trying to starve us out? Now Hezekiah had gone to the prophet Isaiah. The king Hezekiah went to the prophet Isaiah. And he said, what are we going to do? And Isaiah said, don't worry, God's going to fight this battle. Yeah, yeah, well, great. Why isn't God fighting this battle? So Hezekiah took that letter, and this is so neat. He took that letter from Sennacherib, the one I just read parts of to you. He goes inside the Jerusalem temple. It's like a scroll, and he, unro he unrolls that thing and puts a rock on this end and a rock on this end so it doesn't roll up. And he says to God, he says, God, you see what they're saying about you? Look at that letter. Read that letter. You see what they're saying about you? What's he saying? He's saying, come on, God, look, do something about it. Here's his prayer. And this is in Isaiah. Don't look for this. It's in Isaiah. Isaiah is a kind of the same situation. Isaiah chapter 37, 18. It's true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people in their lands. That's true what he says. I mean, they've thrown down their idol gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, only wooden stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, listen to this. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms on the earth. What are we talking about? We're talking about worship. And what's worship when you're totally focused on God in utter dependence? Remember that? Oh, Lord, our God, deliver us from, from, from their hand so that 
all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are God. Why did he want that victory? Why do you want victory in your life? To get out of a mess or for the glory of God? Man, that's worship. His chief concern, what was his chief concern was the glory of God, that all the nations on the earth will hear about this victory and know you alone are God. Now keep pretending you're a sentry on that wall around Jerusalem, the sun sets, and you look at the camp of the Assyrians and the campfires are going out. And you say, man, that, that, that's strange because they burned those fires all night. Those fires are going out. Then you always heard merrymaking from drunken soldiers and there's no merrymaking. And you're thinking, uh-oh, they're so silent out there. Uh-oh, they're getting ready to attack us by night. And you're just waiting for the onslaught. No onslaught. Gets light, sun rises. You look out there and they're just kind of laying there like they're sound asleep. You wonder what's going on. Hezekiah the king comes up and he says, they're dead. They are dead, man. Those are dead folk out there, man. It was God. And word spreads, word spreads. They are dead. The Assyrian, this brutal, this brutal Assyrian army, just the name of them strikes fear in the hearts of people, man. They are all dead. The Bible says 185,000 strong. They're dead. And the prophet Isaiah said, why did you doubt? Didn't I tell you? Folks, it was Egypt all over again. What happened in Egypt? The angel of death killed the firstborn of every Egyptian, right? And delivered the Jews out of bondage in Egypt. This time he took every life. Same angel of death. Same, it was Egypt all over again, man. I mean, the angel of death that the Father and the Son's command in heaven came down, and in one swoop, and the Psalms tell us this, in one swoop, he spread a plague, the plague of death. Now, after a time of reflecting on this, the Holy Spirit moved Hezekiah to write Psalm 48. For all generations, you and me, to read, to study, to digest, we read in Psalm 48 that the Jews celebrated, then they were silent, that's verse 9, and then they boasted about their God. Turn to Psalm 48, verse 1. Just, just Hezekiah's reaction to all this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of God, his holy mountain, which is Jerusalem. And then you jump to verse 3. God is in her citadels, and he has shown himself. Isn't this true to be their fortress? He was their fortress. Then you go to verse 4. When the kings joined forces and they advanced together, they saw her, meaning Jerusalem, and they were astounded. See that? I like the NIV here. They were astounded. What's going on here is, is, has, is Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he sent out his emissaries and says, scope out Jerusalem. Scope them out. Check them out because we're going to invade them. And so the emissaries come and they walk around Jerusalem. They see this, for, this strong, fortified city. And they hear about their God, about Jerusalem's God, the Jews' God. How he delivered the Jews from Egypt. How he won, the, how he, how he won all of Canaan through Joshua. Fought every battle for him. Heard, heard about the, the great King David and all the battles God fought for him. And, and, he, and they go back to Sennacherib, these emissaries, and say, say, they got an awesome God, man. They got an awesome God. You really want to take on this God? You want to fight him? And Sennacherib says, no problem, go for it, see. 185,000 strong like that, dead. Now, here's what we got to know. The Jews were led by a great king, Hezekiah, and what made him great was his trust, his unflinching trust in God. Their backs were against the wall. The Jews had no moves. And when this victory happened, the world would know it was whose victory. <laughs> it was God's victory, man. Their backs were against the wall. No human effort made this happen. And God would get all the glory. See God, see, God is the only sinless. Did you know this? God is the only sinless being worthy of glory. 
God is the only sinless being and he is the only one worthy of glory and he wants it and he seeks it and sometimes the only way God can get the glory he seeks and wants is to put you and me in situations where it is so obvious God did this. I mean, we are backed against the wall. So you got to remember what worship is. Worship is when all your attention is focused on God. It's the Greek definition in complete dependence. God will put you in situations so all you have is him. God will put you in situations so all you have is him to think about, night and day, day and night. And here's what you say. God will get you in a situation where you got to say this. If you don't do this, God, it's not going to happen, and I'm toast. I'm serious. God will put you in a situation where you got to say, God, here it is. I have no moves. You don't do this. I am toast. He'll put you in that situation. You know, all this is to get us to ask one question. When an issue comes into my life, ask yourself this question. Who or what is the focus of my attention? Who or what am I trusting? That's what you got to ask. See, 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 maybe God's trying to give us a Hezekiah mentality. I mean, he spread, I love this. He spreads the letter on the floor, on the temple floor before God and, and said, God, here it is. Look what they're saying about you. You don't do something, baby. We're toast. He kind of said something like that. See, I'm saying that sometimes, sometimes God has to put you and me in a crisis situation to draw all our attention on him completely dependent because then there's nowhere else to look, and that's worship. Focusing on God with all you have. Worship is when you are consumed with God, consumed with God. All those people inside that wall of Jerusalem, man, they were consumed with God. They had nowhere else to look. Are you consumed with God? You come to the end of yourself. I, I was writing this message thinking about this, and I thought about Romans 1. You know what Romans 1 says? God the Father removes all restraints. He removes all restraints. He says, all right, you want to go that direction with your life? Uh, I've warned you. I've sent people into your life inside you by my Holy Spirit. I told you don't go there. But you want to go there? I gave you a free will. Okay, go there. Then he removes all restraints. And you go there into your far country like the prodigal son. And you slime around with the pigs. And you hate it. And you come to the end of yourself. And finally... You call out to God. You cry out to God. And like the father and the prodigal son, why he does this, I don't know, but he will run out to meet you when you turn back to God. See, you have come to the end of yourself. That's the big deal. And he will run out to meet you. He's going to put a robe on your back and sandals on your feet and a ring on your finger. He's going to throw a big banquet for you. That's the God we serve. When you come to the end of yourself and you turn from everything else, and trust God and consume yourself with him, he will meet you where you are. Second point on worship in Psalm 48 that I said, I said I saw a number of elements of worship is in verse 9 about meditation. See, all this happened. All this stuff happened with the Assyrian army. And then after Hezekiah digests this for a while and sits down to write about it in Psalm 48, in verse 9 he goes into the temple and says, within your temple, O God, we got all these people and we're meditating, we're meditating on your unfailing love. Maybe after this victory, Hezekiah said, what just happened here, you know? So notice that word meditate in verse 9. Before he could appreciate what, Hezekiah, what God had done, Hezekiah the king had to just slow down, go into that temple, and say, i got to sort all this out in my mind, and maybe fall on his knees, and in the silence of God's temple, he had to meditate. Silent meditation is such an important part of worship. It's an attitude of reverence, and we are not reverently silent. Too many things to do. You know, most mornings, I, I get up real early and I take my coffee. 
I, I, I go sit on the floor in some room in the house when it's dark and silent and I meditate. And you know what I do? I'm not saying I'm right about all this. I'm just saying I take the time to meditate and I'll sit on the floor somewhere. It's dark and, and I'll just think through the day before and I'll, I'll, I'll try and see the hand of God. See, I'm so busy. I'm so busy during a day. I don't do that. But I, I sit there with my coffee and I just, I just park myself and I think about the day before. I try and relive every detail. And when I do that, you know what I begin to see? Here was God, here was God, here was God, here was God, and here was God. See, I begin to see that and I begin to see the hand of God. Then you know what? Then I can go through the rest of my day in my busyness and I know, I just know, because I sit the day I saw it the day before, I just know his love is upon me. And man, that is precious. You want to get through a day, you have a problem getting through a day, that's what you do, man. You take it, you go through a day. You know, that medit you know that meditating time with God leads me to stop in the middle of a day and say a prayer, Lord, what do I do now? <laughs> and I know he's listening. I know he's going to give me wisdom and direction because of my meditation time earlier. I mean, silent meditation, both personal and public. There's got Listen, in here too, there's got to be a time we kind of shut up. I'm serious. There's got to be a time when we start the music and we just got to reverently say, okay, God, now it's time to fill my soul. Man, it's time to fill my soul. And here's what happens, man. Here's what happens when I, when I take the time to dwell on God like King Hezekiah did because he, he thought about this battle. And he said, man, my God is so big, he took on those brutal Assyrians who had war technicians. Man, they, they had pain engineers, pain technology. And they were so feared, but they were nothing. One angel, 185,000 people, one angel. God didn't even need an angel. All he had to do was will their death. He didn't even have to think the thought. All God had to do was come from within God and will that victory. Man, all you got to do is think about this, baby. I'll tell you, just think about it. And God becomes so big, and I think about God as I... As I study his word, and he becomes so big, and whatever my thing is for that day, that, that, that's, got me, that's got me bothered. My thing becomes so small when I dwell on God like that. Wouldn't you like your thing to become small? Wouldn't you want that? I mean, we make our things in our minds, you know, so big, and we worry. Wouldn't you like that to diminish almost into nothingness? How does that happen? I love that time with God that most of us don't take. I pray and that's worship. I go over a day in the time of my life and I see God's hand and that's worship. I meditate on what God said to me about himself in his word. And I look at all that stuff in his word and I just, man, he just gets so big and so wise. And whatever I'm dwelling on becomes so small. I'll just give you an illustration. Last week I read Matthew, I just studied Matthew chapter 12. And here's Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are just doing everything to trap him. So they can kill him. And here's what I noticed in Matthew 12. Jesus didn't run. He didn't run. He didn't run from their traps. He didn't run from their threats. Now, I see, to, to pick this out, I had to meditate on that scripture. Because I'm looking at about three or four things in my life that I'm kind of sweeping under the rug that I need to face. I says, hey, Jesus didn't run. He faced him. I have everything he has going for me, man. And, that, and, you know, that day I began to face every one of those issues, but it took meditation. It took meditation. You know, I'd rather not face them, but I did it. I forced myself to do it. It took meditation. And, medit and that's a whole other message, but we're so busy. Our schedules are so jammed. I got to ask, where's the quiet time? Listen, you got, you got to shift some things around, man. You got to give yourself quiet time, silent time, worship time. Don't miss those precious, cherished moments with God where he just reveals himself in all his fullness and all his glory. Now you got to look at Psalm 48, verse 12. Walk about Zion. 
Go about, go about her, that's Jerusalem, count her towers. Consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. These people are bragging on their God. I mean, they've been delivered from the Assyrian menace and their relatives from out of town come into town. And they say, hey, 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 let's go take a walk around Jerusalem, man. Hey, look at her ramparts, look at her towers, look at her citadels. See, God dwells here, man. They were proud. Hey, you guys hear about Sennacherib? <laughs> my God did that. Or maybe you say, hey, I can walk on my knee again. My God did that. Or I got this new job. My God did that. We were going through this really, 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 really tough time, me and my wife or me and my husband. And we're still together. And guess what? We're more in love than ever before. My God did that. People are going to tell you luck, right place, right time. No, you're going to say, my God did that. See, believers, we need to hear this. And unbelievers, see, we, we need to hear each other boast about God. Unbelievers, unbelievers need to hear you boast about God. Because you know what unbelievers are going to say? They're going to think, I wish I had that trust. And maybe they'll ask God, God, I, I reach my limit. I want you in my life. Do the same thing for me and seek him. See, your greatest witness is your personal testimony. That's your greatest witness, man. And I'll tell you something. I am so proud of my God. My God died on the cross for me. And people walked away from that cross, and they said, guess, I, I guess, he was, guess he wasn't all he said he was. Three days later, that's my God. He rose, which means death is beaten for me, which means I live with a certain hope nobody can take away, which means I live a victorious life. Folks, show your God off. You know what? Say, look at me. You boast about God. Say, look at me. This is where I was. This is where I am. Look what God did in my life. Um, worship is when we boast about our God and tell the world what he's done. And we love him. And we don't care who knows. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.